sin. We see this over and over, that they would see Jesus and then they'd look at themselves and say, I'm a sinner, or Isaiah, you know, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips. We read in Isaiah chapter 6 when he was caught up into heaven and so forth. So the very first thing that we do after the call to worship is acknowledge that, in fact, we are sinners in need of a Savior. And I hope that doesn't sound like bad news or downcast or depressing, because it's followed by good news immediately, and that is those who call upon the name of Christ have their sins washed away. It's always my prayer when that happens that I'll feel the same way about that today as I'll feel when I'm actually standing before God on Judgment Day. When when you hear before the gazing eyes of a God who knows us intimately, your sins are washed away, that's a good day. And I want that to be the day. And then then when that happens, we're ready to sing. And when I look around and people aren't really singing the way they, with the kind of gusto, I think, I feel like they're not getting it. They're not really getting what just happened. So you've got this thing that's going on in the liturgy, right, where some people call it a dialogue, or there's this engagement between us and God where he's saying this, and then we're saying that, then he says, well, what about this? And we start singing. Well, we're at the point in the liturgy now where we're going to have the sermon. Well, what's that? Well, I'm going to open up three verses here. We're going to take a look at it. I'm going to do my best to tell you what I think it means. When you read the Bible, basically what you're trying to get out of the Bible is two major things. What is the Bible telling me about God? What do I learn about God in this passage? Secondly, what is his call in my life? Now that I know this, so what? Now, sometimes the call is worship. Sometimes the the whole passage is all about This is a God we should worship. Sometimes the passage is about repenting of a particular sin or pursuing a a different type of life and so forth. So this is kind of the goal. The goal is for us to get what's going on as we read these three verses. Now, with that in mind, what we're going to see in these three verses twice is a word that I have found to be really a valuable word for me as a Christian. The word is imputed. But I realize that we don't really use that word very often. So before we start, I want to kind of tell you what that word means. The word imputed means to to reckon or to calculate or to to either credit or charge to an account. So if I went to your bank account and put money in your account, I will have imputed money to you. Or if I came in and took money out, it would be me extracting. And your money is now imputed to me. I remember years ago, my wife and I went to the desert for a little vacation, and one of our relatives said, you need to go to this restaurant, and you need to order the pork chop. I don't think I've ever once in my life ordered a pork chop. It's like ordering liver. You don't go to a restaurant and order liver. So we go to this restaurant, and, uh, you know, our our relative said, "You you need to order the pork chop. You got, trust me. Believe me, pork chop. So we're like, all right, let's get the pork chop. So we go in, we get the pork chop, and it was unbelievable. It was a delicious pork chop. So we eat the pork chop, and then we're waiting for the bill, and the waiter comes and says, your bill has been taken care of. And the relative had told the restaurant, 
If they order the pork chop, I'll pay for it. <laughs> so it was imputed to our account. You know, he, he, he took our charge upon himself. Now, that might be a very crass way of explaining this idea of imputation. The imputation is, I have something now that I didn't earn, that I don't deserve. There are three imputations in the Bible, three big imputations. The first one is the imputation of Adam's sin to us. Paul says, in Adam, all have sinned. So his guilt is imputed to us. We're part of a fallen race. And then there's another imputation, and that is our sin is imputed to Christ. He takes our sin. And then finally, it's the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and that is his righteousness is imputed to us. Now, let me tell you, that's good news. R.C. Sproul calls it, you know, the, the, the magnificent transfer. He takes our sin, and we get his righteousness. With that in mind, with this idea of imputation, hopefully with an understanding of it, let's look at these three verses. Romans 4, 23 through 25. Hear now the word of God. Now, it was not, it was not written for his sake alone. By the way, he's talking about Abraham here. Not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would grasp in these three verses what we are to learn about you and what you have done for us. And we do pray, Father, that we wouldn't look at these verses in a static way, but in a very active way, that we would look at these verses intently with the intention that it would, in fact, change our hearts and our lives and our thoughts and our behaviors. So we do pray, Father, that your same Spirit who inspired these words would work within our hearts. We pray in his name. Amen. You know, in the Bible, we open up the Bible and we read about Abraham or David or Moses or the Apostle Paul, and we tend to kind of group all these people together as biblical figures. But what I find is interesting is there was about as much distance in terms of time between Abraham and Paul as there is between Paul and us. So when the Apostle Paul is writing about Abraham, he's writing about somebody who would have been an ancient figure to the people reading what Paul is writing. Sometimes, I don't know if you do this when I read my Bibles, my Bible, I kind of tend to, to canonize these people. You, you make them bigger than life, or you make them more evil than they maybe would be, and so forth. We, we tend to do that with historical figures. But the more you read the Bible, the more you realize that other than Jesus himself, the Bible is a book about a bunch of sinners. Abraham sinned, Moses did, David sinned horribly. A lot of these people in the Bible I wouldn't want as a neighbor living next to me on the roof, peering into whatever, these stories that we read. You know, he didn't have HBO, but he did have a rooftop. And we tend to do that especially with somebody like Abraham, the father of the faithful. You're looking at Abraham going, wow, this guy... 
this guy is the guy that everybody was looking to, even though we read in his stories, right, that he, that he did some serious lying in his adventures. But, but the point I'm trying to make here is that the message to Abraham is the same message for the Apostle Paul, and it's the same message for us. The message in the Bible is the same message. From Genesis to Revelation, there's not some different message. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That imputation was given to Abraham. So when it comes to what we were just talking about, the imputation, the crediting to your account, the righteousness of Christ, that which was true of Abraham was also true of Paul, and it will be true of the very last person who ever comes to faith. It's the same message. Now, in these three verses that we're going to look at, this morning, we see what the Charles Hodge, the great 19th century president of Princeton Theological Seminary, when it, was, when it was a Christian seminary, wrote to be, quote, a comprehensive statement of the gospel. In these three verses, he says, we have the gospel. What we're going to see, just to give you an advance notice, in verses 23 and 24, we're going to learn this, that the scriptures were written for our benefit. It's written for us. Then in 24, we're told that it is the believer who receives this benefit, the benefit of the imputed righteousness. It's the believer. We are now told also, what is the believer to believe? What does the believer believe? Sometimes... You know, if you're at Disneyland or something and somebody gets on the loudspeaker and it's like, we just have to remember to believe, right? And you got this kind of blanket believe out there. Believe what? What am I to believe even about God and what am I to believe about God? And finally, in verse 25, we're informed of what the Father did with the Son and why He did it. Verses 23 and the beginning of 24. Now it was not written for his sake alone. And again, we're getting kind of a middle of a thought, just so you understand. Paul in Romans chapter 4 is talking about Abraham. He's talking about David. He's talking about the imputed righteousness that comes by faith. But Paul's like, going, hey, this is not some history lesson. This isn't a novel. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. And you know what? That us includes you and it includes me. You see what Paul's doing here? See what the Bible's doing here? It's getting very personal. This is not a hypothetical conversation. You ever have those kinds of conversations where you're, I call it head talk, and you move from head talk to heart talk. Right? Head talk, you're talking about things. It can even be theology. We're talking about theology. Hard talk is when you look the person in the eye and you say, you need to respond to this. All the temperature in the room goes up a little bit, right? Sometimes we need to be willing to do that. I remember a, a gentleman attended our church who was a professed atheist every Sunday for a year. Every Sunday, and we'd come because, you know, we have Q&A, just so you understand, those of you who don't understand what I'm saying, you can stick around afterward and you can either email the question, and I'll do my best to answer, 
or you can get up and ask the question, but it's really important that we understand things. And this guy, he's like, yeah, there's a lot I want to understand. So he'd come into my office. Pastor Paul, I have this question, this question, this question. He was a smart guy. He had read not only his own, the Bible, but he had read Calvin's Institutes. I mean, he has really did his homework, question after question after question. And finally, I said, you know, after a year, I go, you know what? Bottom line is, you just need to repent and believe. Like, this conversation's over. We're moving from academic to personal. This is written for us, and it's not a novel, and it's not mythology. What this is written for, it, it is written for us to understand who God is and what his call is in our lives, and there's a call to action. I recall one of my seminary professors making this statement I thought was very profound. He was talking about how the Word of God, people struggle with it. It's hard. Because the Word of God is revealing to you God, and when God is in the room, things can get very uncomfortable. And his view, and I agree with him, he goes, one of the problems with people is when they start studying the things of God, they recognize this, that God has a claim in their life. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, God made you, and he has a claim in your life. It's no wonder, and I don't know if you've noticed this, that the world would like to reduce the message of Scripture to mythology. All right, there's this effort. Just this last week I was reading something, and there was some reference to some biblical historical event, but it was categorized under mythology. The world likes to kind of go there. They want to kind of you know, take the supernatural, profound, prophetic word of God and turn it into something less than it is in an effort to ignore it. But have you noticed the world's just not very good at that? They're not very good at ignoring the Bible. They try to ignore it, and then they get mad at it. And, and that shouldn't surprise us, because the Apostle Paul said, look it, I'm going out, and he compared the word of God to an aroma, a fragrance. And it's one fragrance. But he said, for some people, it's the fragrance of life, and for others, it's the fragrance of death. But it's not the fragrance that changes, it's the person. Right? The person is like going, I don't like that. Now, we, I understand that. It's not like I don't get it. There are certain things I don't like. I'll tell you what I don't like. The hospital. I don't like the hospital. And I go there a lot. But sometimes there are things that we don't like that we really need. Because as much as I don't like the hospital, I've needed the hospital. And on those days when I needed the hospital, and they're taking me into the hospital, I'm not saying, I don't like the hospital, don't take me. I'm saying, I don't like the hospital, but can we drive a little faster? But that is the way it is with the Word of God. There's something out there, and it's very personal. And Paul's saying it's written for us, and we need to take this personally. You know, the Bible is often called the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? But we don't really use those words very often, do we? Testament. When is the only time you really hear the word testament used? Almost Almost exclusively, when somebody's reading a will, right? It's your last will and testament. 
So I think the Bible needs to be read kind of like a will. Right? And here's the way it goes. So you go, the real estate lawyer is there, and you've gone to the reading of the will, which let's just say I'm the real estate lawyer, and this is the reading of the will. And I say, by the way, um, you, place your name here, you will inherit a billion dollars the moment you... You see how everybody's paying attention? (laughs) If at the reading of the will you checked out, you're checking in now. The moment you... We are to listen intently, seeking to understand, willing and ready to act. Paul is forming, he's informing us that the message is for us. Now the rest of 24... It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So as I said, that which was true of Abraham was also true of Paul, and it is also true of us. And that is, we all stand in need of an imputed righteousness. We need it. Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. A righteousness, Paul says, that is not my own. He goes, Paul, in his epistle, says, you know what? I had to get rid of my righteousness. And he made a list of all the things that he used to account as his righteousness. I was born in the right family. I went to the right schools. I went through all the religious ceremonial stuff. And he said, I count it all as rubbish because I don't want my own righteousness. I want the righteousness of Christ imputed by faith. That's a perfect righteousness. And let me tell you, that's a liberating message. I I mean, I felt good when that pork chop was paid for by somebody else. You know, you reach for your wallet and somebody's like, no, no, I got you covered. Let me tell you something. If you say that to me, I will let you pay. (laughs) I'm not one of those those people who go, no, no, hey. The moment you say that, I'm like, all right, man, I'm going to take it at your word. And you just leave that wallet right in your pocket. Because you know what? My money's dirty money anyway. Right? I don't have my righteousness isn't going to pay the bill. It is, it is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. The simple yet profound question might be asked: how does one obtain the requisite righteousness for entrance into heaven and eternal peace with God? I mean, that's a question we see in the Bible, right? What must I do to be saved? How do I get that inheritance? In the moment I said, the billion dollars is yours, the moment you, and then I left it kind of blank. But I'm, people would be pretty interested to know, well, what do I have to do to have the riches of heaven forever? And again, the message in the scriptures has been the same message. The message didn't start at the Incarnation. The message didn't start at Christmas. The message goes all the way back to the dawn of man. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham is in heaven to this day through the instrument of faith. By the way, the word believe and the word faith, they're the same word in the Bible. 
He believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But, but let's push this a little further. Talk about faith, talk about belief, but what did he believe? What did Abraham believe? In what? Or I might say, in whom did Abraham believe? Because I have to say, is it the bald yet inactive statement that I believe in God, small g? Is that what it is? Because even though we have this great swell of modern neo-atheism that is you know, winning the minds of a lot of people these days with Hitchens and Dawkins and those guys, ultimately, I think people recognize that, as the Bible says, you know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I think the vast majority of humanity recognizes atheism doesn't work. There's this nagging knowledge in the mind of, some, of everybody that there is a God. We can't let go of it. But is it, is it enough to go, well, there is a God somewhere that did maybe some things, undefined, that I can't put my finger on, but the fact that I'm looking around going, there's got to be some God somewhere out there, is that sufficient? Well, no. It wasn't Abraham just kind of going, well, I guess there is a God out there somewhere. No, Abraham believed certain things about God. You know what he believed? He believed that God could bring life from death. Matter of fact, in that statement, what's going on there is Abraham's 100, his wife is 90, God promised that they'd have a baby, and Abraham believed God that he could bring life from death, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But that story with Abraham goes way beyond that. It's a very deep story. You know the story of Abraham and Isaac, and he brings his son to be sacrificed and all of this. It's not just that Abraham wanted a baby. Abraham recognized that his very redemption was tied up in the promise that through him there would be a seed, that is Christ, through whom redemption would come. It wasn't as if he was an old guy who wanted a baby. He was an old man that God had made a promise, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Walk outside and look at the stars. I'm making you a promise that your descendants will outnumber the stars and the grains of sand. That through you, the anointed one, the Christ, will come. And when Abraham brought Isaac to be sacrificed, we learn later in the New Testament, when we read it, he recognized that God could resurrect Isaac. He wasn't kind of going, well, I'm just going to kill my son. No, he'd already seen life come from dead. And he's going, well, he's going to do it again. He's going to bring life from dead. And so that's what's believed. He's, you're, you're believing that there's a God in heaven who has who's overcome the sin of Adam. On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God's going, well, that, that is the true pandemic, right? That everybody dies. But there is a cure. And the cure is Christ. And God has made a promise that if we believe in Him and believe what He did in His Son, death no longer is our ultimate destiny. This promise culminated. The promise given to Abraham, it culminated in the resurrection of Christ. It might have been distant, It's very difficult sometimes. Like I said, there's the same message in the New Testament as in the Old. It's not some different message. 
But in the Old Testament, you're reading it, and you're kind of going, how clear was it to them what God specifically was going to do in sending Christ? I'd say the message was there, although they didn't get the full picture, right? The picture that angels long to look on, you know, this real beautiful in-color panoramic view of the redemption that comes through Christ. Nonetheless, as we had talked about a couple weeks ago, Moses, who predated the birth of Christ, considered the reproaches of Christ greater than the riches of Pharaoh. So Moses was a Christian. And Jesus says this remarkable thing about Abraham, who again predated his birth by almost 2,000 years. He's in this very heated conversation, by the way, in John chapter 8 where he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Then he says something that perplexed them and to this day perplexes people. He saw it and was glad. Well, what does that mean? Well, there's all sorts of answers given. Some say, well, he saw it because he's in heaven now or he saw it by, you know, virtue of, of the promises, I, I kind of lean toward that. I, or some people think it was the angel of the Lord, you know, that he saw. But I, I think that Abraham's eyes were open to the promise of the Christ. He saw it and he rejoiced. So what is it that the believer believes? If a person walks into the church or if we're in a conversation and, and somebody says, what must I do or believe to be saved? How is that answer? There may be a lot of ancillary or attending doctrines to, to that. You know, there are a lot of wrong answers when it comes to what's written in the Bible. And if you ask me long enough, I'll give you some of them. Right? I am Pastor Paul. I am not the Apostle Paul. And hopefully, and we, you've been doing Q&A when somebody asks a question, and I'm like, yeah, I don't really have the answer to that question. I try not to fake it. We all, none of us are canon. The scripture's closed. When I, when I read this little passage, I said, hear now the word of God. And when I got finished reading it, I said, thus far the reading of God's word. That's the word of God. Everything after it is me telling you what I think it means. And that is not the word of God. I hope I'm accurate. I hope I'm telling the truth. But let me tell you something. You have a responsibility to test all things and hold to what is true. And if I'm saying something that's wrong, you have a responsibility to sit down with me and go, wait a minute. You seem to have gotten this wrong. And I have a responsibility to have the humility to be corrected. But at the very heart of it, not the ancillary doctrines, but at the very heart of it, what the believer believes is the resurrection. That is what we believe. That's why this is such a big day. You know, I mean, in one respect, it's Sunday. We talk about Resurrection Day. Every, every Sunday should be Resurrection Day. Every Lord's Day should be Resurrection Day. We just know that for some reason, more people are going to be here today than they would normally be. And then other people are visiting their relatives and so forth. But that's the message. The message is, I am to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Later in Romans, the Apostle Paul communicated this along with the Lordship of Christ, kind of going, look at it. If, in fact, you believe 
you're going to recognize not only that he's your savior, but that he's also to be your master. He doesn't leave that out. But we read in Romans 10, 8, and 9, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So the word of God is there. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I love how this is, I love the consistency of the Bible. You know, he's like, if you believe in your heart, right, confess with your mouth. The Bible always seems to put those things together. And I don't think he's kind of going, look at it. I remember when I first came to faith, I was by myself in my room, as far as I can remember, reading a little tract somebody gave me. And it was kind of like, you know, Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. Confess with your mouth. And I'm like, I better go find somebody to tell real quick. I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. I don't think that's the message here. I think the message here is the same message that we see in Revelation with the idea of the forehead and the hand. And that is the way you believe and the way you behave. The way you believe, I was going to say, should affect the way you behave, and I'll, but it's stronger than that. The way you believe does affect the way you behave. And if you're behaving in, a, in an ungodly and rebellious manner, that means you're not really believing. Something else has hold of you. Might be good to figure out what that is. But notice where Paul goes on this, that we believe that God raised him from the dead. So in short, the believer who believes God raised Jesus from the dead is the one who, by the very grace and power of that event, the resurrection, receives the imputed righteousness, which grants eternal life. I mean, if I were to sum up what I'm hoping you all will walk away with, it is that you have the righteousness of Christ through faith. But that's the gospel. You know, John writing, again, to the same message about Moses. You know, the story of the rebellious Israelites in the wilderness and the serpents bit them. You know that story, right? Yeah. So the serpents bite them and it's a fatal bite and they're dying And, uh, you know, Moses is like, what am I going to do? And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build yourself the serpent, bronze serpent, build it, hold it up, and everybody who looks at it will be healed from the deadly bite of the serpent. You see, now if I'm Moses, I might say something like, well, Lord, now that I have your attention, why don't we just get rid of all the serpents that are biting people? Like why, why? It's like they're still going to be bitten, but you're giving me a cure. But you understand, there's a message there. The message is that the biting never ends in this life. Death is in your future. And he says here, John, right? Now we move all the way to the New Testament. John says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal Life And I just, I love the beauty of that, because in that, if you go to that account, all they had to do 
was look at the serpent. They didn't have to crawl to the serpent. They didn't have to climb up the serpent. They, they, it's, it's as simple as that. You look. And I would say it is a looking by faith. And Jesus is lifted up and you look to him. And that serpent, in one respect, is still there. We still got bit. We're still going to die. But there's a deeper death. There's, the Bible calls it a second death. And that death does not touch those who've looked to Christ. Paul then completes his thought with a very brief explanation of why this must be believed and why this message is for us. Verse 25, who was delivered up for our offenses and was raised because of our justification. So this may be not real obvious right now what Paul's doing, but he seems at this point in the text to bring our attention to the Father. Because this idea of being delivered up or raised, these are in the passive. The Father sent the Son. He delivered up His own Son. And even though Jesus, no doubt, said, I came to do Thy will, Jesus wasn't a resistant sacrifice, we have to resist the idea that the Father is our enemy and Jesus is our friend. That is not what the Bible teaches Father sent the Son. He sent Him to take what we could not endure. It is this that that brings to mind what historically, well, I want to put it this way. At least when I was young, the most memorized verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Although I was at a talk recently, and I thought it was pretty interesting. The speaker, who's a buddy of mine, who's very, very clever, very smart guy, he goes, you know, yeah, that's, not the, yeah, that's the verse I just read. Um, he said, you know, a long time ago, thousands of year, years ago, the favorite verse in the Bible was, Hero Israel, the Lord is one, right? The Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord is one. And then, the favorite verse in the Bible became John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now the favorite verse in the world is, judge not lest ye be judged. (laughs) Isn't it funny the way we work? But Jesus was delivered up. We should not view that verse as God just sending his son on like a, a trip. Delivered up to what? What was just Jesus delivered up to? Pain, suffering, death, and wrath, and I would argue beyond human comprehension. I don't think our minds get to where the Bible says Jesus went when he became a curse. For he who knew no sin became sin. I have to say, I mean, by the way, that passage is one of the more beautiful passages on that double imputation, right? For he made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I don't, I don't, my mind doesn't get to either one of those. The extent of the righteousness or the depth of the sin. But that's what the Bible says. The father delivered up his son to rescue us from sin and death. I'll tell you, that, that, that eludes me. I just played in a volleyball tournament yesterday, a little four-man tournament down in Knob Hill. My 
two of my, my two sons were on my team. I like my sons. And I love my daughters. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you right now that, that I, I don't love anybody enough to give up one of my kids for them. See, I, I, I'm stuck in terms of God trying to explain to me the depth of his love for me, that he sent his son to die for me. I have to kind of mark that under that prayer where Paul's saying, I am praying that you will understand the depth and the height and the width and the length of God's love for you. Because I don't get there. Because the idea that I would give up one of my kids for anybody just isn't going to happen. I don't love anybody that much. And yet the Bible says God loves us so much that he delivered up his own son for us. And I do, I do hope that we appreciate the magnitude of such a statement. I think when he says that all of this surpasses knowledge, he makes that prayer. He's like, I pray that you might understand the width and height and length and depth of this love which surpasses knowledge. I don't think that's a hyperbole. I think it just surpass, it, it surpasses our knowledge as creatures. Finally, what does it mean by the words and was raised because of our justification? And that is, so he's raised the resurrection for our justification. Another big word in the Bible, this idea of justification, the idea of being declared righteous. It's the same word as righteous, that we are declared righteous The resurrection, among other things, was the observable testimony of Christ's victory, securing the Father's favor on our behalf. So when that angel rolled away that stone so as to set Christ, the prisoner, free from the tomb, we are told it provided the greatest assurance possible that divine justice was satisfied. You see, we've not merely been saved from the first death by a dead Savior. As noble as that would be. I mean, if somebody dies for you, I mean, that's the greatest love, right? Greater love hath no man than to lay down his life. But that's not, that's not what Jesus did. We, he's not a dead Savior who saved us from the first death. We have been eternally saved from the second death by a living Savior who has come forth from death as a mighty conqueror. And we are told that by virtue of our faith in Him, we are more than conquerors. See, this is good news. Jesus was raised for our justification also in this that he is your high priest. So that's one of the differences, just as you know, between Roman Catholics. You know, they don't call me Father Paul. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. And the difference between, in the Bible between a priest and a prophet would be that the prophet goes from God telling people stuff. But the priest goes to God on behalf of the people. And so we believe in the priesthood of all believers because we can all pray for each other. But in terms of that office of priest... We have a high priest who is Christ. And what is he doing? The Bible says he intercedes for us. He's praying for us. 
And he was crucified outside the gate. Why? Because he became a curse. But then what does he do? What does he do now? He presents not the blood of a lamb, but he presents his own blood in the holy of holies as an anchor for our souls. That whole picture in the Old Testament of that holy place and the holy of holies was all designed for us to understand what Jesus as our high priest is currently doing, and that is he is still our advocate. You know, we've been going through the Revelation, and the Revelation, we read that the accuser, the devil, accuses day and night. He accuses. And I think that as Christians, I don't know if you've ever been accused but when, I don't know, you know, when you are accused, when I'm accused, I always know there's probably some element of truth to that accusation. If you want, if you want to find fault in me, it's not going to be hard for you to find. All you have to do is hang out with me. Right? That's why I don't want to ever run for office. That's that accusation. Like these elements of truth in the accusation. That's why the call to worship followed by the pardon of sin is not, we hope you had a good week this week and that you're righteous enough to come and worship. No, no, the pardon of sin is your sins have been washed away. And at least as we're gathering here, when you hear those accusations, our minds should be swept to Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, which says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God has made you righteous. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? These rhetorical questions, the implied answer to the rhetorical question is nobody. Who can bring a charge? Nobody. Who can condemn? Nobody. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us. Friends, the message for Abraham, Paul, and us is a message that the righteousness and attending redemption is acquired by faith in a God who raises the dead, who delivered his son, and whose victory is the great spring and foundation of all true comfort. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as a church we would never lose sight of the centrality of that message that you, in your great love for us, sent your son to die and rise from the dead that we might ever live in him. And I do pray, Father, that there would not be a person in this room who's not called upon your name. I pray that even as this message goes out in the airwaves, people listening would have their hearts of stone turned into hearts of flesh and that deaf ears would have the ability to hear and blind eyes to see and that the message of the redemption found in Christ would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, we pray in his name. Amen.